Today, we hear a lot about the end times and the future as we live in the present and try to make sense of it all. If you're trying to make sense of the future, the present, and the past, today's episode may be for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Keith Crosby Out of My Mind. This is podcast 057, podcast 57, and today we want to have a biblical conversation with you about the crazy world in which we live. So join us over the next 20 minutes or so as we provide you a bird's eye view perspective of a complex issue confronting our culture, the church, and you as we apply God's word to make sense of it all. At the end of the podcast, we'll point you to additional resources just in case you'd like to dig a little bit deeper. In the meantime, let's get started. All right, Keith. So it looks like today's episode uh, will will prove rather interesting, uh, making sense of the future by having a biblical view of history. And uh, I know some of those teasers were how we fit into the end times and all of those things. And so why don't you fill us in on what all that's about? Sure, Mark. What I really want to do today is to talk about a biblical understanding of history, how history works, because this helps people avoid a couple of mistakes that Christians make and have made throughout history, whether it was the last 300 years or the last 10 or so. Periodically, it seems that Christians and professing Christians and other people become convinced that we are living in the very last of the last days of the end times, and this can lead to a couple of mistakes. Mistake number one is that good people read current events into biblical prophecy and recklessly embrace the apocalyptic pronouncements of some self-appointed or self-proclaimed prophets who give precise timetables for the end of the world. And the, or they look to the night sky and look at the moons or the constellations or the blood moon and, and draw conclusions about the end of the earth or the end of history. You saw this in the 1830s with the so-called Millerites. They were followers of a preacher named William Miller, and he encouraged them to sell their homes and earthly possessions because he had fixed the exact date for Christ's return. And so they sold everything they had, and they met in the middle of a cornfield in upstate New York waiting for Christ to show up at the appointed hour. And when he didn't, they were humiliated, and people call this not the second coming, but the great disappointment. Now, a little less than 200 years later, we saw the same kind of thing, I think it was about a decade ago, with the owners and leadership of Family Radio. They, too, set a precise date for the end of the world. Many of their followers replicated the mistakes of those who followed William Miller, and they sold their earthly possessions, and they experienced, like the Millerites, a great disappointment. Now, mistake number two is looking for a messianic figure who's going to fix our country or fix the world. We saw this in the 1930s, as hard as it is to imagine now, when the German people looked at Adolf Hitler, who at the beginning of his rise readily employed messianic language and Christian terminology. And the people flocked to him. And we know how that ended, don't we? Recently, professing Christians of different stripes have looked alternatively to the former president of the United States or the current president of the United States to save our nation and the world, and some still do. And that is a huge problem for the Christian church and for Christians. Yeah, I think we've seen examples of this everywhere, especially um, more recently. And I think often it seems that Christians put their trust in humans, political saviors, and, and those sorts, um, like they're these people who are going to save the world, and they have their hope in just worldly fallen beings. Yeah, this is true, Mark, of so many good, well-intended people. And I'm concerned that such people are falling into the same trap that the Jewish people did in Jesus' day. 
The people of Israel in Jesus's day were looking for a political, a military Messiah, and they inadvertently rejected the true Messiah because they were looking for someone different. And I'm afraid that more than a few Christians today may be unwittingly They're going to find themselves opposing Christ by their thinking and approach because they are seeking a political Messiah or a political Savior like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Zealots did back in the first century Israel. And there's a reason for this tragic error, I'm afraid. And what's that? It's this. They lack a sufficiently clear-cut Christian worldview. They lack a worldview informed by the Bible itself. They don't understand the flow of history they don't understand how history works according to the Word of God. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great kind of introduction. And so what comes next after this? Well, the biblical view of history is a picture of steady and irreversible moral and spiritual decline. Think of a spiral staircase, but instead of spiraling upward, it's spiraling downward in a downward direction. Or you could think of an airliner in a slow but inevitable crash dive. The longer it's in that subtle dive, the more speed and velocity it gains. But the crash is inevitable. The crash is unavoidable. The crash is certain. And that's what the Bible teaches about history and the trajectory of human history. I mean, think about it. God created a perfect world with perfect relationships between humans and him, and we messed it up. The Bible tells us that we rebelled against God and set things in motion. In Romans 5.12, we read this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. There's that picture of a decline. We understand that the wages of sin is death. And the human condition and human relations, therefore, is one of moral decay and decline. Now, certainly through technology and great medicine and perhaps diet and exercise, we live longer and can do more things. But intellectually, we can't even duplicate the pyramids with all of our technology. And morally, we kill each other. We kill other human beings created in the image and likeness of God on a larger and grander scale than ever before, ever known throughout history. And besides that, we rebel on a greater scale, whether it's today's perversions or whether it's human trafficking or slavery. There are more slaves today than any time in human history. Think of the missing 200 million preborn little girls aborted in China and India through sex selection abortion. Or think of our own country since the passage of Roe versus Wade, nearly 70 million preborn human beings have been murdered. Think of that scale. It's a scale unknown in human history because things are spiraling downward. I mean, look at the barbarity of ISIS, or look at the slow-motion genocide underway in China where they're wiping out this ethnic group called the Uyghurs. They're putting them in forced labor camps, concentration camps. They're forcing them to be sterilized. They are uprooting them through forced relocation, and they're, and they're just putting them in prison in these mass incarcerations. But before that, there were the concentration camps in Nazi Germany or in the former Soviet Union. This kind of moral decline is described in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Even in our study on Sunday morning and our Sunday morning messages in the book of Revelation, we've seen how things will go from bad to worse in the end times, particularly as you get into the tribulation period and that last three and a half years, the decline goes into, to use old Star Trek terminology, warp speed. Yeah, and I think you see this reflected in the book of Daniel as well, 
uh, with Nebuchadnezzar and his first dream that Daniel interpreted that brought him into the prominence um, with Nebuchadnezzar and really um, helped kind of seal his his place, the succeeding civilization becomes weaker and weaker and weaker and not greater and greater. That's right. You know, the head was gold. I think the chest was silver. You know, the the the, the trunk was was brass. You know, the legs were or whatever, and the feet were iron, the legs were iron, and the feet were iron and clay, things decline. That's how it works. And Daniel, in interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, provided us an overview of the downward spiral of history until Christ returns, you know, a stone uh, not cut by human hands that destroys all the other earthly kingdoms and sets up a kingdom that will last forever. This is the testimony of history. Things will go downhill until Christ returns to judge the earth. Jesus alludes to this in Matthew 24 and 25 during the Olivet Discourse. And I'm reminded that, you know, as we concluded our study of the pastoral epistles, Paul writes to Timothy, now the spirits expressly said that difficult days are ahead. And he goes on to explain that people will devote themselves to the doctrine of demons. And in 2 Timothy, he warns that the followers of Christ will face increasing hardship and persecution and that evil people will go from bad to worse. That is what we're talking about here. Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse that people's hearts will grow cold and that false Christs will appear. And he warns us in Matthew 24, 7 and 8 that nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains, the beginning of the end. All right, so this all seems pretty bleak and almost hopeless. What would you say to those people who are like, what, are we, what am I supposed to do? It just seems so hopeless. Well, it does seem hopeless, but it's not. God gave us his book, the book, the Bible, not just to warn us, but to encourage us, to prepare us. And you heard me say it on Sunday. Revelation is the happiest book in the Bible. Why? It tells us that Jesus wins. Evil will not prevail. God will intervene and make all things right. And Jesus will make all things new and wipe away every tear. And this is very good news indeed. But things will get worse before they get better. Okay, so what do we do with that? How do we live in response to these facts? What are we supposed to do in this world that just seems so hopeless, but there is hope. Well, in First Peter, the Apostle Peter writes, for us to conduct ourselves with fear throughout our time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. And what he's really saying here is you have to have this exile's mindset. You know, we get wrapped up in the things of this earth, but we are just passing through. You know, I'm glad to be an American, but my citizenship is in heaven. And what Peter is saying here is that we are not to live distracted lives that pull us away from our true purpose. Again, we are citizens of heaven and exile here on earth. And no matter what country or continent we live on, we must not lose sight of this. That's why Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.4 that no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. We are not to get wrapped up in the wrong things. And often we fail to understand and apply our Bibles to understand history. And we've too often allowed ourselves to become preoccupied with the wrong kinds of things, earthly distractions. And so we seek political solutions to spiritual problems. And that just won't work. And we get entangled in the things of this world. So I want to return for a moment to that picture of history as a spiral staircase that's headed downward. Mark, I grew up on the coastline on the East Coast. 
And in the entryways to ports, you find lighthouses. And I liked old lighthouses. I used to love to visit them. But here's the challenge with these old lighthouses. You go up a few hundred to several hundred steps, and your legs get really tired. And then you've got to come down. What goes up must come down because you can't stay there. And when you start down, there's no doubt that gravity's in control and that you're going down. Well, that's where history and the tops of my thighs intersect. Work with me on that. Like I said, there's no doubt you're going downhill, so to speak, just like history is spiraling downhill. And I mean to tell you that when you're walking down those steps, the tops of your thighs are quivering like jackhammers. And so periodically on the way down, there might be a pause or a respite to catch your breath, to take a look around. Which means what? Well, despite history's inevitable downward spiral and the decay of human morality and civilization, God does allow for pauses on the way down, like me stopping on the way down from the top of a lighthouse. And God provides this, not men. I mean, you look at the disintegration of imperial Europe, particularly following the Napoleonic Wars in history, and then the rise of the American experiment and how it facilitated international missions worldwide. There's a pause in the decline. Or even the story told by Nebuchadnezzar's dream that God enabled Daniel to interpret. Toward the end of of that statue are the legs of iron, which are the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, during its 200 years of peace, which are called in history the Pax Romana, they built an extensive highway system. And in that pause in the decline before those feet of clay, they built this highway system that would later aid and abet the spread of the gospel throughout the world. That's God working out all things according to his providence, causing all things to work together for good. Then even in recent history, you have the first great awakening with Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s. And in England, Wesley and Whitfield preaching in the coal mines of Wales in England. And in the 1830s in the U.S., you had the second great awakening. There's also the great Welch revivals of 1904 and 1905. And even the renaissance of expository preaching in the late uh, to uh, mid-20th century. These are those pauses where dissent and decline seem to slow down or stop temporarily, and many people find Christ. The church worldwide seems to catch its breath and retrench and find its footing by God's providence, and there is a harvest of souls. These are those pauses in decline, and these are acts of mercy and grace in the tides of time on this stairway down to Judgment Day. And make no mistake, these events aren't political, they're not sociological, they're not ideological, and they're not constitutional. These events are spiritual, theological, and biblical. Okay, I think I see where you're coming from, and ultimately I think where we're headed. Um, So where do individual Christians fit into this equation? In Acts 1-8 and Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we are told to bear witness to Christ at home and abroad so that some might be saved as we redeem the time. And what you see in the Great Commission, no matter where you find it, in Acts 1-8, where we're to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the whole world, or that means at home and abroad, God wants us to change our communities one soul at a time with the message of Jesus Christ, not political ideology. We are to make disciples, to baptize them, and to train them to do likewise all that Christ commanded while we can. We are living at a point of history to do just that. God has raised us up. He's raised you and me and everybody listening to my voice for such a time as this. We are here for a reason, 
It's not by chance. We are not to get tangled up in politics and social action and miss our opportunity during these pauses or even absent a pause to share the gospel, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's another word picture for history. Think of a sinking ship. Think of the Titanic. This world is a Titanic and it's going down. And don't think by electing this person or that person, you can cause the process to be reversed. You can't. And when you act that way, when you end up ignoring Scripture and waste time, you're basically rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And that's why Paul, I think, wrote this in Ephesians 5.15. Look carefully, then, how you live. Spend your time, not as the unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now, I'm not telling Christians that they can't vote their conscience, that they can't engage the culture. But I am warning us all. I'm warning myself. I'm warning you. I'm warning everyone that our job, we exist to share Christ, to explain the gospel and get people off of this Titanic that is this world into the lifeboats that is the kingdom of God. Everything else really is window dressing because we are living in the end times. And the end times, as I define them, is the time after the resurrection of Christ, where each passing day presents opportunities to share Christ and also represents one day closer to the end of history. And to be candid, I think we're much closer to the end than we would have normally expected or thought or imagined. And so we need to live with urgency. Revelation 1.3, which is the thesis statement for the book of Revelation, says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud and hears and keeps the words of this prophecy, for the time is near. The time is near. I'm convinced that it's a lot nearer than I would have ever guessed even a year ago. And so we have to remind ourselves that God put us here in this place for this time for a reason. And so we have to keep the main thing the main thing. Again, vote your conscience, raise your kids, do the best on your job. But let's not lose sight of why we're here to save lives and eternities, starting in our own homes and reaching outward. And we need to understand that no politician or political party or ideology should in any way reorder our priorities to preach the gospel with urgency with our lips and our lives, because we cannot slow down or stop what God has ordained, namely the downward spiral of history. And so we need to understand this and in so doing, reorder our priorities accordingly. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like additional resources, go to our resource page at www.gracetoliveradio.org and hit the resource button. If you have questions, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at keith at hillside.org. If you'd like to learn more about Hillside Church, visit us online at www.hillside.org. Uh, we have church services in person on Sunday at 8 o'clock in the morning at 9.30 and 11 a.m. And of course, we live stream. We have a young adult service on Monday night. We have our youth ministries on Wednesday night. And I also want to invite you to our Fall Fest, which is October 30th. It's full of fun and games. 5 to 8 p.m. There'll be food trucks, trunk or treat, all kinds of fun. Bring the whole family. In the meantime, whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on, rate us, give us a good rating, make comments, and help us reach more people with this podcast. This is Keith Crosby with Mark Stickler. God bless you and God keep you.